Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. So he is far too modest to ever tell you this, but a song that we sang just a moment ago, Skip wrote. So can you, I mean, he gave us, and I won't tell you which one it was. It was not, it is well. (laughs) Laughter tells me you might have known that. He gave us something new to worship to, something new to worship with, and we are so grateful. Can you all tell Skip thank you for... They know him. It's 1947, and there's a shepherd boy wandering around the desert region of a place called Qumran, trying to round up any stray animals. He lands upon a cave. Now, it's not unusual for stray animals to get in from the heat by going into a cave. There's shade in there, and oftentimes they'll hide out, and all it really requires to get them out is tossing in a rock. And so this little boy throws in a rock. Instead of hearing crumple and thud of rock, he hears a clink, the crashing sound of broken pottery. His curiosity gets the better of him. He climbs into the cave and sees that his stone has broken a clay vase, parchment with writing on them, scrolls strewn about. He gathers some of these parchments. He brings them to his father and has no idea that he has just landed upon the greatest, greatest archaeological find of his lifetime, maybe of all time. He lands upon something that is so priceless. Somebody in the marketplace recognizes the intrinsic value of these parchments and gets the shepherd to agree to show him where they were discovered. This launches one of the largest, most productive archaeological expeditions in modern times. From this cave, there were discovered many other caves. Ultimately, over 900 fragments and manuscripts of Bible. Manuscripts of Bible and other historic notations are retrieved. These documents, they validated the precision of your current Bible. Things that were ancient compared to the modern translation lines up. The translation you use in modern days, these are held true to that ancient text that was discovered in that cave. It's one of the biggest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. They are the ancient documents that get stuffed into clay pots near some cliffs by the Dead Sea. Their story starts about 2,300 years ago, these documents, in a place called Qumran, 2,300 years before a shepherd kid finds them in the 1940s. On the northwest corner of the Dead Sea, there's some rocky cliffs that jut up into this brutal territory, nasty, inhospitable, badlands sort of territory where this whole thing goes down in a town with some cliffs called Qumran. Scholars believe this treasure trove of artifacts and documents were placed there by a community called the Essenes. Essenes are very strict Pharisaic society of Jewish believers, right? If you think about Christians in America, think these would be like the Amish one, you know, like very reserved, very pulled back from society, trying to start their own community, their own place that's isolated 
from this world. They would, have, they would have been in this sectarian community from at least 250 BC to 100 AD. Think of all the things that they would have seen in that pocket of time. The aftermath of the Alexandrian conquest, the Greek overlords turning mean and nasty as the Maccadeans rebel against them. The Jewish people would set up in that pocket of time their own kingdom and the Romans would come and kick them out. And suddenly Rome starts turning up the heat, right? And these Essenes pack it up. They go, man, we'll come back later when this is done, right? When Rome is not after us anymore. So they pack up all these ancient documents intending to come back to them and they forget and 2,300 years go by until a shepherd boy trying to scare sheep out of a cave lands upon them. It's an amazing find and an amazing story. One of these documents gives rules for life in this new community, in the community that they were setting up, how to handle conflict. It's so funny to read this today, how to get along, how to get people to get along with other people. Historians have noted the similarity in these documents to Matthew chapter 18, which is where we're going to be looking today. If you want to grab your Bible, you can turn to that now. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's yours. You can use your phones. Turn off the notifications. We're going to put references on the screen, but we're not going to put the the text of the verses. We want to get our noses in this ancient book. Matthew 18 is very close to some of the documents that we see in this Qumran community that, that is trying to give rules for how they conduct life there in community. And it's very funny. It doesn't change the meaning of Matthew 18. It just makes us think that Jesus might have been drawing from something that his audience was familiar with. Matthew 18, he uses words that are meaningful enough on their own, but when you add to that the fact that his audience might have been familiar with the Qumran community, we can see that he's doing something very interesting. John the Baptist, his sermons are noteworthy on their own, right? But when you look at these documents from the Qumran community, you can see that some of his sermons, he's drawing from some of the texts that were familiar to him from the Essenes, from this pocket of time. So the Essenes give rules, community rules. Here's one. I wanted to read you some of these because they're very funny. Whoever has gone naked before his companions without having been obliged to do so shall do penance for six months. This text does not go on to disclose what being obliged to do so would entail. But no streaking unless you're asked, apparently, to this. And if you do, you have to do penance six months. Whoever has spat in the assembly of the congregation, so no spitting, shall do penance for 30 days. No spitting, you're gonna do penance for 30 days. Whoever's been so poorly dressed That when drawing his hand from beneath his garment, his nakedness has been seen, shall do penance for 30 days. Which means this, Jerry, you got to wear underwear. (laughs) We're tired of this, Jerry. Too many people are seeing your underwear. Whoever, this is another one, a real one, has guffawed foolishly, shall do penance for 30 days. A guffaw is a loud laugh. Some of you are doing penance. For the next 30 days. Whoever's drawn out his left hand to gesticulate shall do penance for 10 days. So a little less punishment for gesticulation, which I looked up and it just means motioning with your hand. Like, don't do that or you'll get punishment for 10 days. The point is these are rules. Jesus, in Matthew 18 though, Jesus gives principles. 
In these documents, you have a bunch of rules. Rules are normally born out of somebody doing something wrong. You want to uh, get them to stop doing the thing wrong, right? Jerry, you got to wear underwear, man. Like, this is ridiculous, right? That's where rules come from. But principles are different. And principles are what, what Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 18. A bit of the difference between a rule and a principle, you can break a rule. You can break a rule, but you cannot break a principle. You can fail to recognize a principle. You can ignore a principle, and you're worse for it, right? But, uh, or you can leverage a principle and be better for it. Another thing is this. A rule is created, but a principle is discovered. You discover a principle. You create a rule. You guys remember Archimedes? Archimedes from geometry class in high school, right? He has this formula, this principle, Archimedes principle. And this formula is why some ships float and other ones sink. It is a principle, it is a formula, a mathematic equation that when you use it or recognize it or leverage it, you can send out aircraft carriers into the ocean. But if you ignore it, you will sink every time. The principle itself is neutral. It can be used or ignored. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 gives us a principle, a principle for life inside this new kingdom that he is building. Many of you may remember, if this is your first Sunday with us, we want to welcome you. We've been studying a, a, a series on the parables, these stories that Jesus would tell. And in these stories, Jesus would, would describe what life is like inside this new kingdom that he is planting right in the middle of the one going on around us right now. And Jesus says, I've brought my kingdom, and, and this story is going to help you participate in what God is already doing. These stories are not didactic little stories that we get a lesson out of for how to live. That happens, but it happens as a byproduct. The goal of the parables is to describe life inside this new kingdom that Jesus has brought. Maybe that will change how you live, but that's a byproduct. It's not the goal of it. We said when Jesus would come to town, when the J train would roll through, they would put on a three-act display, right? Act one, miracle. Someone gets healed. Someone gets fed. Somebody walks. Somebody's vision is restored. Someone's healed of their leprosy. Something happens, and everybody goes, what in the world? And with all eyeballs on him, Jesus moves to act two. Act two, the kingdom of God has arrived. He makes an announcement. He says, evidenced by the fact that I just did this thing, the kingdom is here and now. And when the people go, what do you mean? He goes, act three, let me tell you a story. My story is going to be about what life is like inside this new kingdom, this piece of God's future world that he is planting right in the middle of this messed up, broken one. And in Matthew 18, he shows us some things. He describes some principles governing the life of people living in light of what God has planted right here. So, I've given you enough time. <laughs> Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Miss Jane read it a moment ago. We're so thankful that she did that. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who, forget, who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Lost my place. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Lord Jesus, um, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Amen. I've been a little reluctant this week in preparing this message for a number of reasons. One, I struggle with forgiveness. It's just something I struggle with. I think the longer I live and the more and more experiences I have with people, the more I find how easy it is to feel let down by people. And I think I have such trust issues that once that trust is violated, it's just easy for me to, to abandon somebody and to just drive a wedge between them. And to move on. And so I kind of go, Lord, don't I have to have this mastered in order to preach on it? I read a quote recently that said, if you preach from your weaknesses, you will never run out of material. <laughs> the second thing about this is that it's, it's really straightforward. I mean, I really don't know what else to do other than just say what it says and go, you should go do this. You know, like, I, it's, it's pretty, Jesus is making it clear that forgiveness is really important to him. 
in this new community, this new kingdom that he's building, it has to be a governing principle, a governing virtue, a characteristic. So what I would like to do this morning is just simply point out a few things about the context of this story, clarify what forgiveness is by clarifying what it is not. We believe some pretty goofy things about forgiveness in our society, and I think we need a little bit of clarification today. We need to separate truth from fiction in regard to forgiveness, and then we're going to give an opportunity to respond to what Jesus says here, because he says it's a big deal. So as we jump back into the story, we see in verse 21, the context for the story that Jesus tells is Peter asking a question. You see that. Peter comes to Jesus and he goes, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now this is, seems like a random number that he's come up with, but it's actually a really generous one. The rabbis in that day and age taught that after three times, you were off the hook. You forgave someone three times. Time number four, you're like, sorry, man, you, you've exhausted all your forgiveness. Like, I'm off the hook. So Peter, wanting maybe to look extra spiritual, extra generous, he's like, oh, I get what you're talking about, Jesus, right? I'm going to do seven. I'm going to take that three, double it, and add one because I'm extra spiritual. And Jesus goes, what are you talking about? He goes, not seven, Peter, but 70 7, verse 22. Obviously, Jesus is not saying, all right, now when you get to time 78, you don't have to forgive anymore. You're, he's establishing that there's going to be a characteristic of this kingdom that he's building that will be marked by overwhelming generosity and forgiveness. He goes, uh, not 7, 77. Like, go above and beyond, go way out on a limb here. And Peter is like, what are you talking about? And Jesus goes, oh, you need a story. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, we don't measure money the way they did in the ancient world, right? The context in which Jesus is telling this story, it's hard for us sometimes to identify how much that is. Some commentators say it's $12 million. It's a lot. Now, other commentators say it's a billion dollars, right? The point is the figure clearly represents an unpayable debt. And his audience would have immediately noticed this. One commentator says the amount is somewhere around 175,000 years of annual wages. <laughs> That's a little, you know, it's 175,000. If he lived for 175,000 years and worked and didn't spend a cent of that, but just like accumulated it, then maybe he would be able to repay it. That's a lot of debt. Oh, another says 10,000 75-pound bags of gold. So 10,000 75-pound bags of gold. It's an enormous debt, one so high that it begs the question, what was this guy into? 
that he owed so much money. I mean, that, that is an astronomical figure. Like, and the audience would have been like, this guy sounds like bad news. Like, I don't know what he was doing, but he should know that much money. That's a lot of money. Since he was not able to pay, verse 25, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. This was common back then, like a debtor's prison sort of thing. At this, the servant fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. No, you won't. Right? 175,000 years of annual wages. It's like, dog, you ain't paying that back. Like, there's no way. They didn't have a Powerball, right? He wasn't going to discover a treasure and be like, oh, this is really convenient. Like, because I owe 175,000 years of annual wages. Like, he wasn't going. There's no way he could pay this back. Some of us try to pay God back. You, um, you see the parallels, some of you do. This is your first time hearing this story. We owe God a debt we cannot pay. We have offended a righteous and holy God. And sometimes we can get tricked into this manner of thinking that if we can just live well enough, if we can just be righteous enough, then we can earn our way to God. And Jesus goes, that's as crazy as this guy going, be patient, I can do it. No, you can't. No, you can't. Stop trying. In this story, Jesus is going, guys, there is only one way out of this debt. Only one way out of this debt. In this new kingdom Jesus is inaugurating, the only way into the kingdom is to receive mercy and forgiveness, the likes of which the servant in this story is experiencing. We have to be forgiven for incredible debt, the likes of which just pales in comparison to any real figure that we can even imagine here today. And then verse 28, the servant goes out think about how relieved he is. The servant goes out, finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, a hundred silver coins is about a hundred days wages. Not insignificant. It's actually pretty significant. But it's a hundred days wages compared to 175,000 years of annual wages, right? In comparison to what he owed, not a big deal, drop in the bucket, but still significant. It's 100 days wages. He goes out, he finds the guy who owes him 100 days uh, uh, wages, and he goes, oh, you're for, no, that's actually not what he says. He grabbed him and began to choke him. You guys, this is unbelievable. I know if you've heard it before, just put yourself back in that original audience. This is not the way you're expecting the story to go. You're expecting he's going to race out of there, he's going to find the dude and go, hey, no worries, we're good, I'm good, now you're good. But instead, he begins to choke him, pay back what you owe me. This is where the soundtrack changes. Everybody in that original audience would have leaned in and gone, what? Like, who would do this? This is unbelievable. Thinkable. So the fellow servant, 29, falls to his knees and begs him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. You notice it's the very same thing he said to his master. I mean, copy and paste. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. Only in this case, he refuses to show mercy to another that he was shown in the first place. But he refused. 
Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay it back. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father, Jesus summarizes, will treat all of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You read that and you go, this is pretty straightforward. Jesus is saying, what I'm about to do, this kingdom that I am building, what I'm inaugurating, is I'm about to settle all the debts. I'm about to die on that cross, and when I do, all of those debts will be settled. This astronomical amount of money that you owe to God for your sins, your offenses, that'll be settled. And it doesn't minimize what other people have done to you. It's still significant. A hundred days wages is still significant, but in comparison to what you've been forgiven of, my kingdom will be a kingdom of people who realize what they've been forgiven of, and in light of that, it's pretty easy to pass on forgiveness to other people. You see, comparing our hurts in the shadow of what you've done to me, forgiving you feels like just letting you off the hook. It feels like giving you something you don't deserve. But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is just extending mercy from one undeserving soul to another. We are all equally undeserving. I've heard it said that Christians should be impossible to offend. Because we've been released from 175,000 years of annual wages. It should be impossible to offend us. To say it another way, after receiving such a word of warning, because this is a stern word of warning, only a fool would refuse to forgive. Can we agree? Only a fool would refuse to forgive. It is a big deal. It is a very big deal. With that, I want to look this morning at some things that forgiveness is not, though. Because I think there's a lot of goofy teachings out there about what forgiveness is, and some of us look at that and they go, well, if that's the expectation, I can never arrive at that. And so because I can't arrive at that, I cannot forgive because I'm not capable of that. And I think this morning what the Lord may want to do is to kind of separate truth from fiction for us so that we can kind of go, I think you can do this. I think you can do this. I think one of the reasons we have a hard time forgiving is because we think one of the things that God is asking us to do is forget. Forgiveness, if you're taking notes, is not forgetting. It's one of the things that it is not. We'll hit what it is not, and then we'll hit what it is in a minute. First thing that it is not is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. This comes, I think, out of the myth of the forgetful God. You guys, if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, I was taught in Sunday school as a little kid that God forgets about your sins, right? When he forgives you, that he's just like, whoa, like I don't, you know, where did I put? This comes out of some verses in the Old Testament that you may be familiar with. I'll put these up on the screen. You can look at them later. Psalm 103 verses 11 and 12 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, how far is the east from the west. It's 
it's infinite, right? So far, he has removed our transgressions from us so that we are distanced from our sins. Micah 7, verse 19, he says, you will again have compassion on us. This is Micah talking to God. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl, I love that word, all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. He throws all of your sin into the depths of the sea. And when I was in Sunday school, they said, and then he stuck a no fishing sign there and was like, no, no, no. I forgot about him. You do too. Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. It's like when it comes to your sins because of the cross, God is like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't remember these anymore. We read verses like those and without meaning to, we fail to recognize the Hebraic understanding of remembering and forgetting isn't like misplacing something. It's choosing to focus on something else. That's the difference. We see this in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. You guys remember Genesis 8? It's kind of the conclusion to the flood. This is a great illustration of this. Genesis 5, 6, 7, you know, Noah's on the ark, and he's got all the animals and his family and all that, and the earth is just filling up with water. And then in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says, and God remembered Noah. Did he remember him because he forgot about him previous to that? Was God like, oh, I think I should be Oh, I left the water running. Oh, you know. Like. It doesn't mean that he forgot and then remembered. It means that he chose to turn his focus to Noah. This is the Hebraic understanding of God remembering and forgetting. He chooses to change his focus. Can you see how incredibly important this is for us when we try to forgive If you think that by forgiving, somebody is asking you to forget, you're going to go, I can't do that. But if you you instead realize that, no, 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 you're just being asked to change your focus. To change your focus. If you buy into the myth of a forgetful God, you can become angry. Right? Because you're like, oh, I asked for forgiveness. I don't feel forgiven. Right? Or somebody's asked for forgiveness of me, uh, um, and I, I thought I gave it to them, but I just can't seem to, I just keep thinking about it. Like, I'm still, I'm working through it. There's some real deep wounds here that I have to deal with, and I should just be healed from it. I guess I haven't forgiven. What's wrong with me? Well, then you have a false understanding of forgiveness. Nobody's asking you to forget. You're being asked to change your focus. If you buy into the myth of a forgetful God, you become frustrated with injustice. Some of you guys have been through some stuff. Some of us have been through some stuff. We've been working through it for years with a lot of help. If forgiving means forgetting for you, then that can trick us into thinking that the person who did that thing to you is just released from the injustice of it. So now you're in a world where there's no justice. You're like, yeah, I can't give you that, man. That just seems crazy. It is crazy. Nobody's asking you to do that. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It leads to this next thing. Forgiveness is not removing consequences. This is so important. Let's just pretend for a moment. You're, you, you've, you've been drinking all your life, right? And then you meet Jesus and you give up that that, that taste for alcohol, does your liver suddenly just go, you got a new liver. You're like, oh, this is great. No. You still got to deal with the consequences of that lifestyle, right? If you've been out there racking up DUIs and you come to Jesus, 
and he forgives you and you're saved, do all those DUIs just disappear? No, there's still consequences for our behavior. The classic story of this is 2 Samuel chapter 12 where David and Bathsheba have to still experience the consequences of their sin being found out. You guys remember this? Nathan, the prophet, goes to him and exposes his sin and David goes, oh man, I am wicked, I have sinned, I ask for forgiveness. And Nathan goes, you have been forgiven, but the child's gonna die, war will never leave your kingdom, and your secret sin will be made public down the road. Forgiveness? Yes. Free of consequences? No. I don't have to remove the consequences when I forgive you. I don't have to forget when I forgive you. And catch this next one. Forgiveness is not trusting again. Forgiveness and trust, these are two different things completely. Harsh animosity is broken at the point of forgiveness, so we're good again. But are you trusting of everyone you meet that you're good with? No. Trust has to be earned. It's like a piggy bank. I tell students this all the time. I, I, you know, I get an opportunity to, to work with a lot of students, and I love it. And the students, that, you know, they'll, for years and years and years and years, they'll make really good decisions, really good choices, and they're storing up that change in the piggy bank, right? And then they make one bad decision. They pull the plug on that piggy bank. You can, you can destroy in an instant, in one decision, what you've spent a lifetime trying to build. And there is a lesson in that for all of us. It takes years and years and years to build it up, to store it up, but in one moment, you can destroy it all again. Forgiveness, forgiveness is meaning no, no more hostility between us, but it can take a while to store that back up again. And this is where students get super frustrated because they're like, I've been good for a whole week. Can't I go to the party? And it's like, that one week doesn't undo the years, like that, that one bad decision. It took you years to build that up. It's gonna take a while to build it back up again. Trust is like that. It takes a long time to build. I don't know if that's fair, but it just is, right? That's just the way it works. So what is forgiveness? We agree it's a big deal. We agree not the goofy ideas we have of it are a big deal, but there are three major elements to what forgiveness is. We'll move quick. One is refusing to seek my own revenge. Refusing to seek my own revenge. This is the first step in forgiveness. I'm going to refuse to seek my own revenge. I'm going to let God be God. It's what Jesus did, right? In 1 Peter chapter 2, you can jot this down and look at it later. Verses uh, 21 through 23, I think we've got a screen for that so you can jot it down. To this you were called, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. What's the example? So you can follow in his steps. He goes, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He He didn't take justice into his own hands. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He goes, I'm going to let God deal with this. I'm not going to take it into my hands. I'm going to let God deal with it. Forgiveness is releasing that person from the offense that they've made against you and releasing them to God. Just releasing them. It's between you and God. We think sometimes when somebody hurts us that they've offended me, that your sin is against me, but ultimately that sin is against God. And forgiveness is just recognizing that. Like, oh, this is between y'all. I, I, this is between y'all. I'm releasing you. Forgiveness is a refusal, if you're taking notes, to be consumed by the past. You know what it is to be consumed by something. 
You know the expression that they're living rent-free in your head when you're consumed by it. It's all you think about. Like, what does it mean to be consumed by it? Anybody uh, find yourself in the brain debate zone? Where your brain is just debating someone. They're, they don't know about it, you know, but you're waking up in the morning. Or For me, it's often in the car or in the shower. I'm just like, and then another thing, and another thing. And I'm debating them in my head, right? And they're not responding. Guys, I win all of my brain debates, 100%. All of, I've never lost one. Actually, never won. Because they have no idea. The only one that is getting worked up is me. I've never won a brain debate. When you're living in that place, when their name makes you cringe, when you're focused on, oh, all you can think about, you're consumed by the past a little bit. And this isn't an overnight thing. Sometimes it takes a lot of working through stuff to let that go. Forgiveness, though, is refusing to seek revenge, and it's also allowing the Lord to get to a point in your life where you're no longer consumed by it. And then finally, it's uh, what we see in the story. Forgiveness is giving to others what God has already given to me. Jesus is saying, remember the 10,075-pound bags of gold? <laughs> remember the 175,000 years' worth of annual wages that you owed me? Remember that, you know? Uh... I know that 100 days wages is a lot, but I want you to remember what you've been forgiven of and then release them to me. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you, so make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.